0: invite you to take your scriptures, if you have them before you, and turn back to Zechariah 3, 794, in the Red Pew Bible if you need it. April 20th, 1980, was a great day in my young life. It was my 16th birthday. Stop doing the math in your head, I'm 57. I'm seven years younger than Pastor Dave. <laughs> Um, It was also the day that I was going to take my driver's test. Now, all day long, I had imagined sitting behind the wheel of the brand new car that my dad said when I passed, we'd go and pick it up. Yes, I was spoiled. But what I did see in my mind was that a few months later, I would wreck that car and I would stand before a judge in a courtroom deciding on whether I would, how much fine I would get and whether I'd get points on my new license. I also didn't see how angry my father would get and how that I would have to spend weeks working at the church to pay all of it off. Um, looking back, it was a very scary thing to stand before a judge. And the reason was, is when I stood there, I knew that I was guilty. I knew that good things weren't gonna come out of this. Zechariah 3 is a story about Joshua the high priest. Not a story so much as a vision. There are eight visions in Zechariah's prophecy. This is the fourth one. And Israel has just come out of exile. So they've been in 70 years in exile because of their disobedience and sin to God. And Satan wants to come and accuse them, saying, God will never use you to rebuild the temple. He'll never use you to rebuild Jerusalem, because look how filthy and unworthy you are. And so, let me paint the picture for you. It's a courtroom scene, and there are, the key word in the courtroom scene is standing. In fact, the word stand, or standing, or stood, is used six times. 3-1, if you look in your Bible, the high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord. Again in 3.1, not only was the angel of the Lord standing there, but Satan was standing there. Joshua himself, the high priest, was standing there. The angel said to those standing before him in verse 4. The angel of the Lord was standing by, verse 5. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here, verse 7. And obviously, Zechariah in this prophecy, in this passage, wants you to think about standing what is it like to stand before the judge? What is it going to be like to stand before God on that day? And I would say like it was for me magnified many times when I stood before the judge. It'll be it was a scary thing for Zechariah, even as the high priest, to stand before God knowing how guilty he was. So you can't read a text like this, really, without asking yourself the question, where do you stand this morning? You see, to have a standing with someone is to consider what you think or feel about really the condition of the relationship with you have with them, and it's important, isn't it? You want to know where you stand with people. That's what we say. And if you have a boss at work, you certainly want to have a good standing with him or her because you want your job, you want some job security. So you want to know what's my standing with the boss, right? How about in your marriage? Don't you want to know that you have good standing with your husband or your wife? You want to know that things are well at home. That, that's important for a lot of things that you're doing in life, right? Well, if I can imagine, if it's important to have a right standing with your boss or your wife, it must be so much more important to have a right standing with God. See, it's not about job security or marriage security. This is about eternal security. So do you know where you stand with God this morning? I would tell you that the Text before us would say this, only Jesus, and I repeat that, only Jesus can give you a right standing before God. So I want to take a look at this text this morning, and I want to see basically just two truths about how you can have a right standing before God, right? If you're not sure whether you do, um, and it seems like in your heart and mind that it might be pretty scary before God's throne someday if you stood before him, Let me tell you about how you can have a right standing with God and face that day. The two things are this. Number one, what is the basis for having a right standing before God? Again, you have a courtroom scene in this text. And three people are standing there. The angel of the Lord, Satan, and Joshua the high priest. Now, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, when it's capital A, angel, and Lord, capital L, is what theologians call a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is before he came to Bethlehem. He comes in human form, and he's standing there beside Joshua the high priest. But he's not the only one standing there on that day. Jesus is, can I put it to you in courtroom language, he's the defense lawyer. We would say he's the advocate. He's going to stand and defend Joshua the high priest. But standing next to him is literally the Satan. And I say the Satan because it's a title. And that's what he does. He opposes. He is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12 tells us. And it's his job as the enemy of God and humanity to stand before those who claim to have a right standing with God and accuse them and tell God how it's impossible for that to be true. And on this day, when you take a look in verse 3 about what Joshua the high priest looked like, you'll find that Satan had a lot of good grounds in his accusations. Joshua the high priest his name is Joshua and it means God is salvation but he didn't look like it he in fact he didn't look like it at all on that day his responsibility as the high priest was to be the representative of himself and of the entire nation of Israel on what's called the Day of Yom Kippur. The Yom Kippur was the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, and he would offer the blood of a sacrifice to pay the atonement for the sins of himself and all the nation of Israel. He was the representative. The high priest basically was the person who stands in for us before God. So here's the idea. I want you to see this text. So when you see Joshua standing there in filthy garments, what you're expected to see is to see yourself. Israel was supposed to look at Joshua when he went into the Holy of Holies and how he looked and how he presented himself before God was how they would be presented before God. And in this case, he has filthy garments on. God would say this this morning, that's you. See, that's me. That's our stand-in. He is our sta- he's our double. This is how we look in our sin before a holy God. And Satan knows that and that's why he's standing there. And he's accusing Joshua the high priest of being completely unfit and unacceptable to stand before God. And not only therefore is he unacceptable but the entire nation is unacceptable to be in God's presence. Here's why. Because he's filthy is the word. And a polite in a way, and our audience, I want to say today, that word means excrement, urine. So he is filthy in a way that you don't talk about politely in, in congregations, I suppose. See, it's the Hebrew word that describes someone who's covered in it. See, back in my illustration, it wasn't just a fender bender. See, he had a total, he was completely totaled out his life. That's the idea. It wasn't just a spot or two on his robe. No, he was covered in it from head to toe. Now, listen, in contrast to that, if you read Leviticus 21 and Exodus 28 and some of the other passages in the Old Testament, you'll know that the high priest should not have looked like that whatsoever. In fact, in contrast to that, he should have looked completely different. If you're going to have access into God's holy presence, there was a complete process and protocol that you had to go through. And on the week before Yom Kippur, the high priest would sequester himself away in a little apartment and adjacent to the temple. And he would allow no visitors. No one could see him because he had to get rid of all uncleanness in his life whatsoever. He had to never touch anything that had been dead, Leviticus 21. He had to have a ritual bath every day leading up to the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, he had to have five ritual baths In that very day before he went before God's presence. He had special clothes that he had to wear. And shoes. He could not wear shoes. And he had to have bells on the bottom of it. In case he wasn't holy when he went in there. See he would die and fall to the ground. And they would have to drag him out. And the bells if they stopped tingling. Meant that he wasn't moving anymore. And that was trouble. He wore a turban on his head. See, and it was clean and pure. Everything he wore was white. Why? Because he was going into the presence of a holy God. See, now that's what he was supposed to look like. Now look what he does look like. He is covered in garments from head to toe that are filled with filth. So how in the world, really, how in the world can the Lord defend him? How can he say The Lord rebuke you, Satan. I mean, isn't Satan right? I mean, he is anything but pure. He is anything but clean. He has absolutely no right to expect any access to stand before God. But yet God says he does. The Lord Jesus says he does. And so the question for us is what basis is it then? What is the basis on which God accepts sinners into his presence? And the answer is given to us in the text. He says... And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. This is what we call the doctrine of election. The basis of him having a right standing in God's presence was that God had chosen him. God had chosen Jerusalem. He had chosen his people Israel. And see, standing before God, listen, is solely based on the sovereign choice of God. You do not have standing before God this morning. The basis is not your own good works. It's not your own merits. It's not your superiority. It's not your religiosity. It's all based on the sovereign kindness and grace of God. None of us this morning are able to stand before God, stick out our chest, and say, God, hey, I may have made a few mistakes, but I'm better than most. That's not the basis for which God allows sinners into his presence. There's a text in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and verses 6 through 8, and that text says, here's the basis for which God chose Israel. Not because you were more in number, he says, God said, I didn't look at all the nations when I chose you and say, wow, you are bigger than everybody else. You are better than everybody else because here's what God says, because you are fewer than number than anyone else. You weren't the most, you were the least. If I was a nation, I wouldn't have chosen. It that was Israel. He says, I didn't choose you based on your number, your strength, your power, your might, none of those things. He says, but here's why I chose you. I loved you because I loved you. God says, I chose you despite who you are. Despite what you've done. See, it's all of grace. So here's the advocate. Here's our defense lawyer, Jesus. Here's his first defense. God chose Israel, it says, because he wanted to choose them to be his treasure. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. All of it. See, God didn't choose you because you were good. He chose you because he was good. See? So we have a standing with God, but it's all of grace. Romans 5, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, listen, through him we have obtained access. What does that mean? We have access. We can go into God's presence. Even though we had filthy garments, see, we can come into God's presence and stand before him as a judge. How is that possible? He says, we, by faith you do it, into this grace in which we stand. You want to have a standing before God? It's by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ that he has lavished on us through his cross, death, and resurrection. So here's the first basis. How can sinners have acceptance before God? How can you stand before God someday and not be afraid of condemnation? Here's how. Jesus chooses people. You have to say, God, I throw myself on your grace because it's nothing I do. Secondly, he says this in question form. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Brand is a nice way of saying stick. You ever been by a campfire and they throw the stick in? He says, listen, Here's my, my high priest, Joshua. He was in the fire, but listen, I took him out. I grabbed him. I grabbed that stick and turned, if you ever had to grab a stick out of the fire, it smolders for a while. It burns for a little bit. Eventually, though, what happens? Uh, the fire burns out. Now, the, the stick may be charred a little bit and may have some, some, you know, some dirt on it or some smoke or some blackness on it, but he says, you know what, eventually you'll have to say, it's not on fire anymore. Here's what Jesus says, the condemnation is gone, the guilt is gone, the fire has been extinguished. John Wesley, who was a great pastor a couple hundred years ago, Charles Wesley, his brother wrote many of the songs we sing in our hymn book. When he was six years old, his house caught on fire. Seemingly, for some reason, as he looks back on the event, he said, everyone in my family got out, but they forgot me. I think one of my parents thought that they got me and the other one thought that they had got me and he was alone in the house and the house was burning down. He says an onlooker, someone that wasn't even in his family, saw him at the window with everything burning up around him and went back into the house and rescued him. He says later on in life when I became a Christian, he goes, I realized that's exactly what Jesus did for me. See, John Wesley says, I'm a brand plucked from the fire. Do you see, sinners this morning, apart from the righteousness of Christ, are under judgment. We are under condemnation. Think in your mind have you ever had this as a Christian come? Has this ever happened to you? You've done something wrong, you've done something sinful. And Satan loves to get in your mind, doesn't he? He likes to tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, right. You're a Christian. Yeah, I saw you still get angry. You're a little charred. <laughs> you are. You're still unloving. Well, I, I heard you talk to your spouse. And that issue wasn't even important. and You got so upset about it. You are messed up. You're still selfish. See, I saw when no one else was around what you were looking at on the internet. See, I... See, Satan loves to whisper in our ear, and, and see, here's what he says, you're still pretty filthy sometimes. I'm not, sure that you're, I'm not sure that you deserve to stand before God. But see, here's what Satan says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. There is no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, back in the 1500s, wrote a letter, and the letter still survives to this day, on May 24th, Fifteen twenty one, He was in Wartburg Castle, which is in Germany. He had just gave his whole treatise in front of the Diet of Worms. That was a council of theology of the Catholic Church. And they wanted to have him killed because he believed that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. And he had defended that truth, and now they were after him to kill him. He was in a letter, and he wrote to his best friend, McLaughlin and wrote that he had had a dream that night. And his dream, he was standing before God, just like this, and Satan was standing there. And Satan had this long scroll, and he would opened up the long scroll, and on it were all the sins of Martin Luther. And he began in his dream to read them off one at a time, which made him cringe. And as he was going down the list in his dream, Satan was reading them off. Martin Luther stopped him, and here's what he said. And I quote, it's all true, Satan, all of it, and more than what you have. I've committed all those sins, but I want you to write at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from all sin. He said he woke from his dream, he took the inkwell, and he threw it at the wall, and it, as if he was throwing it at Satan. And it splotted against the wall. And if you ever go to Warburg Castle to this day, there is a black ink stain on that wall next to the actual desk that he sat at when he threw the inkwell at Satan. You're here this morning, can I tell you? Maybe there's some Christians, some believers here. You need to throw the inkwell. You need a black spot, as it were, on your wall and say, hey, listen, I understand Satan. I understand I'm still charred. I still mess up, and I still have sins. but I know this, the blood of Jesus. See, that's my, that's my ground. That's my basis of standing before you. It's not my righteousness. It's not my performance. It's not how good I am, and that certainly is not an excuse to go on and sin, Paul would say in the next chapter in Romans 6, that grace may abound. But here's what it is. See, see Satan cannot accuse you because you're in Christ Jesus the King. The angel of the Lord makes Joshua acceptable by removing his filthy garments. Look at verse 4. Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you in pure vestments." See, it's not enough. Hear me. As good as it is, it's not enough that God just says you're not guilty anymore. It's not enough that you just have forgiveness. And that is fantastic and great. But salvation, true salvation, is more than that. And here's what Zechariah says. See, you get a new set of clothes. See, here's what it is. It's God saying, take away your righteousness and I'm going to give you, or the theological term, impute to you my righteousness. That is pictured in a new set of clothes, as it were, a new wardrobe. I looked on the internet. You can't get these clothes at Macy's. You can't get them at Saks Fifth Avenue, as rich as all that is. See, what the Bible does from the beginning to end is give a picture of What it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The very beginning is Adam and Eve. They sinned against God. And you know what they do? They realize their nakedness. And what do they do to hide themselves? Well, they make fig leaves for themselves. Why? Because here's our tendency. Please listen. In our unrighteousness and self-righteousness, when we're confronted with God's righteousness, our natural tendency is to build our own wall and to cover our own self. See, that's what sinners do. But their own righteousness didn't make them acceptable to God because if they would ever be in his presence again, God had to kill an animal and shed its blood and he had to make, listen, he had to make clothes for them from the skin of the animal. And in the Hebrew, it makes us understand that the clothes that he put on them were clothes that fit them from top the bottom see he had to have a righteousness they had to have something that would completely clothe them but it, it's not done just in adam and eve but in the new testament it keeps going on and on and building this pattern you know the demoniac of gadara was there and he's the bible said he was so possessed with demons a legion of them that he was running around cutting himself in the cemetery as it were and he was without clothes the bible makes it very clear like Adam and Eve, that he had nothing on because he didn't care anymore because his sin had taken over, the demons had taken over his life. But the day that Jesus comes and casts the legion out of him, the Bible says in the very next verse that there he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. You know why? That's salvation. God casts out your unrighteousness and the demons as it were of your life and he cast them out and he found in Jesus clothed him. And no longer was he cutting himself and running around crazy. See, see, he was clothed in his right mind and his greatest desire was to be with Jesus. The prodigal son comes home and he's walking down the long road leading up to his house in Luke 15 and he has been out for a long time and he has... One set of clothes left, and they smell, and they're disgusting, and he walks up to it, and his father says, immediately, you're forgiven. But he doesn't just forgive the prodigal son. What does he say? Get a set of clothes, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Why? Why? Because I want my son to know this. I don't just forgive you. I'm reinstating you as my son, and you have position. You have standing in this house. And it's all pictured by the clothes that he wore. The saints of Revelation stand before the throne of God. And the Bible over and over and over describes the saints of God standing before the throne. And here's how they describe them. They are clothed in the robes of righteousness. They have white garments and they stand before him giving him worship and praise. See, that's salvation. It's not just that you're forgiven and the guilt is gone. But no, you have to be clothed. You have to be clothed in God's righteousness. When I graduated from college, my parents, and all my college years, we lived in London, England, and I had gone over there numerous times, and my dad said, for your graduation, I have a special gift I want to give to you. So he took me down to this very famous on number one, Seville Road, it's Gives and Hawks. It's a place where they make suits, and but you don't just look on the rack and find the one you like. They make it just for you. So I stood on this platform, and you have to put your arms out and your legs out, and they measure you, and they bring out these big things of material, and you have to choose the the kind of cloth you want, the kind of suit you want to have, and they measure it and what you want it to be, and they tell you, come back in about two weeks because we have one tailor who's making this just for you. My dad said, I wanted you to know how important you are. And you know how he showed me? He wanted to give me a suit made just for me. That's what God does. You know what he does? He wants to say, Listen, I love you. I love you so much that I gave my only son for you. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And he says, And I, and my son, have got together and we have made clothes just for you. Ones that cover up all of your sin all of your shame, all the things that you've gone through, things that you would never tell anybody else. He goes, I know all of them, and I cleanse you from them, and I have a robe, I have a suit, I have some clothes, just with you and your name on them. See, the last thing he says is, let's get a turban and put it on his head. Remember what I told you? How, How thorough is God's cleansing? See, from top to bottom, On the high priest, when he went into God's presence, and you couldn't go in without this, there was a turban, a large white turban. On the front of it was a gold plate, and on that plate was engraved these words, Holy to the Lord. He could not enter and offer a sacrifice for forgiveness, to be right with God, have rights that he couldn't do it for himself or the people unless he wore that white turban. And God says, see, that's how far I go. I'm going to take him, I'm going to give him new clothes, and I'm going to give him that headband, and see, he is going to be holy. And isn't it amazing how God can take someone who is literally covered in filth in ways that we can't even describe out loud to the point where they can stand before a holy God, and he looks at them and says, they are absolutely holy in the very way that my son Jesus, my sinless son Jesus is holy. That's salvation, that's exactly what God does. But we'd be remiss this morning not to close with the last half, verses six through 10. And I'm not gonna go through them all, but I wanna make two points real quick. Here's what it is, ready? Can you read verse seven with me? Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways, keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts. Listen. Joshua, the high priest, was justified that day. He had a right standing with God because he was cleansed from all the filth of his life. Can I tell you that? That's not all salvation is. It's not just justification. It is also sanctification. On that day, he did not just get a new wardrobe. He got a new walk. And that's why verse 7 ends and begins with the same little word, walk. Because here's the expectation of when God cleanses you, and washes you, and sanctifies you, and totally gives you a new wardrobe, he says, see, you got new clothes on, now I expect a new conduct. You have a new wardrobe, I expect a new walk. You're supposed to live differently than you ever have before in your life. And so in the text, three times, this transformation is so incredibly outrageous that the That Zechariah writes in verse 3, 4, I'm sorry, 3, 4, behold. But then he has to do it two more times, one in verse 8 and one in verse 9. And every time he gets to a new juncture of what God has done to change Joshua's standing, he says, behold, because he's amazed he can't believe it. See, listen, people ought to look at your life, if you're truly justified, they ought to look at your life and say, wow, that person is so different, they are so changed, they are so trans, they are not the person that they used to be. See, that's the result of salvation. So number one point is the basis of having a right standing. Number two point is the behavior of having a right standing, because your life will not stay the same. Can I be honest with you? Salvation is not just a change of your destiny, hell to heaven. It is a change of your desires. It is a change of your deeds. It is the change of your life and the way that you walk. See, that's what it means. And God says, it's amazing. Behold the change that my son, the Lord Jesus, can bring into your life. But you'd say, Pastor Walker, okay, that That's almost more than I can believe is possible. How can someone go from being so unrighteous, so ungodly, to have such a standing with God and then live such a changed life? How is all of that possible where he doesn't leave us guessing? He says, I'm going to send someone. In verses 8 and 9, he says, I'm going to send my servant the branch. If you read Jeremiah and Isaiah's prophecy, you'll know that this is a prophecy and a title given to the Lord Jesus himself. He is the extension of David. That's what it means. He's a branch. He's an offshoot of King David. And there's gonna come a day when there would be a king in Israel. And that king would change people's lives forever. In fact, so much so, listen to this that no longer would they need a high priest to go into the temple to offer an animal sacrifice because there would come a king one day who would be the branch, who would be God's servant, who would be sacrificing in such a way that here's what the text says, that the removal of Israel's sin in its entirety will be accomplished, listen, in a single day. For all the hundreds of years, they had offer sacrifices that this branch and this servant would come and he would do something that would take away the sin of mankind who put their trust in Jesus in one single day. And we all know, don't we? That's coming up in just a few weeks, isn't it? That's what Easter is all about. It's about Jesus who died on the cross to give his blood, his blood to sacrifice for your sin and mine See, Jesus is the branch. He's the servant. He's the high priest. Isn't it not coincidental? Listen, Joshua the high priest, so filthy. Do you know that Joshua and Jesus' name are the same? Joshua's name is Yeshua. It means God is salvation. And God puts it together. Look at this Sinful sinful high priest. You need one that is pure and holy and perfect. And I've got the real Joshua, the greater one in Jesus Christ. And he's gonna offer himself up to pay for your sin and for mine on Good Friday. That's the gospel in a single day. That's the gospel in a single sentence, is it not? But let me ask you this. Let's put your life in God's courtroom in heaven today. And there is Jesus standing here And there is Satan standing here. And right in the middle of the two of them, you're standing there. The question is, when Satan starts on his long list of accusations, and you know them to be true, the question is, will Jesus stand up and be your defense? Will he be able to rebuke Satan? Will he tell him to get out of here? Will he tell them, hey, this one right here, see the one you're accusing, he or she's been plucked from the fire. I plucked them out. I remember the day. I remember the day when they were under my judgment, and see, my son Jesus died for them. And that day at Faith Baptist Church, they called on Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. I remember that day. He's rebuke you, Satan, get out. They're not condemned anymore. The guilt is gone. Will he be able to say that for you? because he can today he can if you'll repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus there's an old song we sing it's still in our hymn book are you washed in the blood of the lamb listen to the second verse and third verse and I'll be done are you washed in the blood in the soul cleansing blood of the lamb are your garments spotless are they white as snow and then the third verse says this ready are you walking daily in the save, by the Savior's side? Are you resting each moment in the crucified? See, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb means this, my garments are spotless. Not only that, but I have a sanctification too. I'm walking daily by His side. Is that you? Where do you stand? Let's pray. with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around in just a moment we're going to close our service with a hymn Have Thine Own Way if you're here this morning with your head bowed and your eye closed no one looking around you say Pastor Walker I don't honestly I've been to church I know the facts I know the Bible I know the stuff I don't know where I stand I don't know if Jesus would defend me. I don't know when Satan starts the accusations. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know where I would stand. Would you humble yourself this morning? We have some deacons of our church down here in the front, and they can take the Bible and show you how that you can have a right standing before God, not because you're good enough, but because Jesus was good in your place. But you have to admit that, Father, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And Jesus is my only hope. I'm never going to be good enough on my own. I need him to save me from my sins. That's why he died and rose again. With every head bowed and every eye closed, there would be someone this morning who say, Pastor Walker, here's my hand. Pray for me. I-, I need to come this morning. Not because walking an aisle will do anything for your eternal destiny. But it will allow you to come forward and let someone show you from scriptures that today could be the day, the day could be the day where you are justified by his grace. And you could have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. You could have the righteousness of Jesus put on your account today when you put your trust in him. Would you say, Pastor Walker, I don't know where I stand, but I want to stand in Jesus. I need him to be my Lord and Savior. Please pray for me. Would you just put your hand up real quickly and then put it right back down and I'll pray for you as we close this morning. Anyone, just put your hand up and say, Pastor Walker, I don't have a good standing with God. I don't think I do, but I, want to, I need to have that standing. Please pray for me. Here's my hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Appreciate your honesty. That's, I know it's humbling. Thank you. Someone else? Thank you. Anyone else would join these ones? Please pray for me, Pastor Walker. I need a right standing with God. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. But real quickly, heads bowed and eyes closed. If you raised your hand a few moments ago, would you do this? When we sing the first verse, don't even hesitate for one second. Don't worry what anyone else will think or what they will say. None of that will matter when you stand before God someday. We all love you and we all want you to come to know Jesus. That's why we're here Would you just do this, walk out right from where you are, meet me down front right here, I'll be standing here, I'll get someone, a lady or a man to show you from Scripture today how you can have a right standing with God. It would be the most important thing that you will ever do, ever. I invite you to come. Father, I pray. I pray for those who raised their hand just a few moments ago and others who should have but did not. Father, I pray that you'd give them brokenness. I pray that you'd grant them repentance. I pray that you'd give them a humility that would allow them to take that step and walk down and get help because they need to have a right relationship and standing with you. And that's only possible through your son, Jesus. Father, would you overcome the unbelief? Would you overcome the accusations of the wicked one? And may Jesus Christ be glorified even now as he deserves. For it's in his blessed name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing. Sing. Uh